Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special edition of Madcap in partnership with the Penn Faulkner Foundation. Today, we visit one of the outstanding fiction writers of his generation. I'm Daniel Bloom. I'm David Ross, and would you please state your name for the people? And I am T.C. Boyle, novelist, and The Harder They Come, which is uh, due out any day now, is my 25th book of fiction. An enigmatic iconoclast who is probably rocking a black leather jacket or a mean sport coat at this very minute. A man of letters, a man of leathers. Hailing from Peekskill, New York, T.C. Boyle eventually took flight in the same direction as generations of American dreamers, to the West. After a master's degree at Iowa's Writer's Workshop, he settled, if you can call it that, in Southern California, helping found USC's creative writing program in 1978. Well, I'm out here in Santa Barbara in our fourth rainless rainy season, scuttling around outside trying to find how I could possibly redeem the, all the dying plants and trees in my yard. T.C. Boyle cannot solve all the world's problems, nor all of California's, but he shook and write about them. For example, his latest book, The Harder They Come, is based on two stories of violence, each found in the newspaper. The first is the story of an old man, 70 years old, who is on a cruise in... Uh, Mexico in real life. I put him in Costa Rica in my book. And uh, the, the bus, the tour bus that they're on is attacked by assailants, young assailants, one with a gun, two with knives, and they are just robbing all the old people. This guy, Sten Stenson, in my telling, reacts instinctively because he had been a former Marine in Vietnam uh, many years ago. And he just grabs the guy with the gun and can't really stop his training from coming in. It's autonomous. Dial it up. Semper Fi. He puts the guy in a chokehold and winds up killing him, for which he is then regarded as a hero. And he and his wife, Carol Lee, have one son, Adam. The story's troubled and dangerous main character. And Adam is a rebel, as I'm sure many of us were in our youth, and maybe still are but a rebel who is also schizophrenic and uh, sees things in a very distorted way. His idol is the mountain man, John Coulter, from the uh, early 1900s, uh, who uh, was famous for his exploits in the Indian territories. The main thing I'm concerned with here is this phenomenon in America of young mentally disturbed, mostly white men, uh, liberally supplied, of course, with automatic weapons, going out and shooting people at random. There are many, many stories. I found one that appealed to me because it speaks to my themes of living in nature, and this is an actual story of uh, a young man called Aaron Bassler in Fort Bragg, Northern California, who in 2011, in his delusional state, shot two people and then was at large in the woods for five weeks, invoking the biggest uh, California manhunt in history, and they couldn't catch him because he grew up there, and he was a woodsman, and so on. So 
these two stories came together in a way that allowed me to, to have a meditation on why is this happening and what is it in the American character that leads us to solve all disputes in the only way possible, uh, not negotiation, not compassion, not sympathy, but just with a gun. The opening quote of the book, the epigraph, which is always very important to me, I always have the epigraph before the book begins. Epigraph and title are important as a kind of way of lining things up. The epigraph is from D.H. Lawrence's um, Studies in Classic American Literature. The American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. It is never yet melted. This is an Englishman writing this in the 1920s, and I wondered, is this true? Our country is young, and I am writing about uh, a kind of frontier mentality that maybe has gone inward now because there is no frontier left. One character in actual American history that came to my mind, and then just a few pages later, sure enough, he's mentioned, is, is Timothy McVeigh. Right. You know, the author of such a book, me, that is, um, often has individual connections to places. My sister happens to live in Arizona in the trailer court where McFay had lived uh, prior to her going there. And so um, I had him in mind uh, as an anti-authoritarian figure who takes his beliefs to the craziest extent. And so the third character, whom we haven't mentioned, Sarah Hoharty Jennings, is 40 years old. She becomes Adam's lover, and they sort of stimulate each other in many ways. She is uh, a member of the Sovereign Citizens Movement, uh, an existent movement in the U.S., which declares that uh, all state authority is abrogated and is illegal so that they don't pay taxes or have license plates or uh, pay any attention to, uh, to cops or, or any of our rules and regulations. So uh, really, I'm talking about this kind of anti-authoritarian streak in American character, which to an extent... The three of us having this conversation could probably have within us, too. But, of course, the, at the root of all this is, do we have a social compact or not? Are we going to be like ISIS, for instance, or other gangs that control parts of the world and simply set our own rules for our own purposes? Uh, do you have a book in front of you or near you, by any chance? Not just no, any book. However, uh, I can certainly get one if you'd like to read, like me to read from it. I would. If, would if, you like that? Is that close by? Would that take? Uh... Oh, gladly, gladly, gladly. I have one. I've got it right in my lap. I've already walked down to the stairs. It was one walk, about uh, twenty steps, and I'm back and sitting here in my office, looking out the window on the Santa Ynez Mountains, which are covered in clouds right now. A very rare thing, but I think they're dry clouds, unfortunately. We know we're in those mountains right now. <laughs> are you? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're looking right back at you. Right right from the mountains. Yeah, now you've painted oh, this picture. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see you up there. <laughs> I see, yeah. You're wearing a red windbreaker, Dan? No, that's my sister. That's my sister. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> This is Madcap, and if you're enjoying this conversation, T.C. Boyle is coming to Washington, D.C. on March 27th with the Penn Faulkner Foundation. Expect laughter, 
great stories, and perhaps even a reading, like the one you're about to hear. In the scene, Sarah has convinced Adam to accompany her on a raid, a raid of her own house. This operation is covert because Sarah is wanted by the law. And despite this fact, or perhaps because of it, Adam is armed to the teeth. From his book, The Harder They Come, this is T.C. Boyle. When they were coming up on her turnoff, she couldn't decide to use her signal or not. But then she figured not, because if anybody was watching, why broadcast her intentions? This is up here, he said suddenly, fully alert and ready for anything. And she was impressed that he could pick out the road in the dark, even though he'd only been to the house once. He was smart, and he'd been born with an internal compass, too. No ravine or trail or gully or back road too remote for him. The kind of person who would always land on his feet, no matter where you tossed him. And if there was one thing he wasn't, it was a coward or a slave. He might have been in outer space half the time, but if ever there was anybody born who could take them on, no holds barred, he was the one. And maybe that was suicidal. Maybe it was mental. It was. It definitely was. But as she turned into the dark lane between the two vestigial fence posts that picked the thread of it out of the night for her, she was glad he was there. If anything happened, which it wouldn't, she'd at least go out in a blaze of glory. The front end let out a little shriek, and then the tires were hissing along the blacktop, and she flicked off the headlights just in case. Blaze of glory, she said aloud, tailing it with a nervous cackle. And she was as crazy as he was. Jesus. I love that. Beautiful. Crazy. I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. And this is just an awesome uh, microcosm of their relationship because she is this very emotional person, always hoping for the best, cooks him this great food, and you go into these wonderful detailed passages about the food, the recipes that she uses, what it smells like, and he is just this animal, you know, who wants absolutely nothing to do with that, and yet they give something essential to each other. Talk about writing that relationship and developing that in your mind. Wow. <laughs> I like um, your characterization of the relationship. Adam wants to be a mountain man. He wants to be independent from society. But he is, like most of us, too attached to it, so that he really needs Sarah and the comforts of her home to kind of redeem him, even if he is harder than hard and he's out there in the woods and he's going to take on the world. Um, from her point of view, she's a divorced woman. She's 40. He's 25. Uh, she likes him. He's, uh, he's good-looking. He's, uh, he's energetic. He gives her uh, sex, maybe even love, uh, as far as he is capable of that. And um, uh, she wants a kind of domesticated life. She wants to mother him and, uh, and to be his lover, too. And as hard as he wants to be, as hard as Coulter, who didn't have any mother or, or woman to go to, as far as we know, he still... He still needs it. I'm crazy for trying And crazy for crying And I'm crazy for loving You So which, which one of these characters was most difficult to write? Ah, all three came to me quite 
easily. I will say that uh, uh, if I look back of all the many characters I've created and books and stories I've written, a character like Adam is easiest for me to write because there is so much of me in him, the whole idea of standing apart from society. But of course, unlike Adam, I have learned to live within society in my own way, and I hope contribute to it. On the other hand, um, I don't really uh, cooperate with people or join organizations. I simply do my own thing in my own way, which I think is uh, kind of a very American sort of way of being. The question that re have taken from the Paris Review and we asked everybody that we've had on the show. But this is this is perfect because normally we ask a ra- we have a range of guests on this show. This is it's best to ask this to a writer because this question was written for a writer. And the question is every great artist secretly performs for an audience of one. So as you've grown in literature, who's the one person besides self that you've always wanted to impress with your words? John Coltrane. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. But unfortunately he's no longer with us. Do you listen to Coltrane as you write? Yes, I do. When I'm not writing, I'm a rock and roller. But when I'm writing, it's music that gives me rhythm and joy, but doesn't necessarily interfere with this um, out-of-body experience that I'm having while I'm writing. Every once in a while, I wake up, and there's the music. And of course, even when I'm unconscious, it's there behind me. The music is hugely important to me. So is reading aloud to hear the beat and rhythm of a sentence, um, it has to click, it has to be just right, or it doesn't work. What is a, what is a Coltrane uh, ballad that, that the, every time you listen to it, the rhythm just keeps be- getting better and better and better and better, <laughs> it just never stops? Yeah, I was just listening to Olay this morning from his album called Olay. Uh, it's, uh, it's infectious. I've probably heard it 10,000 times. I used to blow along with it when I was a kid on my saxophone. It's great stuff. J.S. Bach, I mean, I listen to him all the time. I listen to uh, the Requiem, Mozart's Requiem over and over. It just depends on my mood. I listen to opera as long as it's in Italian or German. What about Jimmy Cliff? Jimmy Cliff, of course, gives the, gives the title, uh, The Harder They Come, or at least the phrase that he used, The Harder They Come, The Harder They Fall. Yeah, I'm a big reggae fan, absolutely, and a fan of the film they made also. Again, I knew a person who chooses their words as carefully as you do would not have missed this connotation. And thus, it occurred to me that you might be okay with that song running through people's minds at certain points throughout the ingestion of this book. Yeah, well, don't forget, it begins in Costa Rica, and it begins on the East Coast, where reggae is predominant. 
uh, and he was getting the point of view of Sten at that point, and Sten hates reggae, perhaps because his son Adam had gone through a reggae phase in high school. And the dog also happens to have dreadlocks, a neat little tie-in as well, which I enjoyed. Yeah, this dog, I have to confess, is my own dog reanimated. This dog is a dog I had uh, who was eaten by coyotes at the age of 14, high up in the Sierras, um, I would guess around 2001, 2002. So I have uh, brought Kucha back to life in this story and made him uh, a Sarah's dog. And yes, of course, the dreadlocks tie in. I love it. Kucha, what does that mean? Does that have a deeper meaning? It just means dog in Hungarian. <laughs> well, we're going so to dog. We're going to pour some out for Kucha. T.C. Boyle is an award-winning, English-professing, best-selling author. His latest work, The Harder They Come, will be released on March 31st. You know, we have to thank the Penn Faulkner Foundation, who helped us arrange this interview, and are bringing you to our fair city on March 27th. And I just wanted to ask you if you were aware of the venue in which you're booked here in Washington, D.C., I think I'm in the church across the street from uh, the Folger, right? That is correct. Specifically, you're booked in the Lutheran Church of the Reformation. And so we wanted to ask you, if we were able to connect Martin Luther to this interview, what, if anything, would you like to ask him? <laughs> God, what a question. I think I have been in that very space before. I've done uh, Penn Faulkner stuff on a number of occasions, both in the Folger, and I think I have been, I'm pretty sure I've been in this, this church before. I don't want to get into uh, to Luther himself, but I will say it's a blessed thing that it's not a Catholic church, otherwise it would have had to cancel the gig. <laughs> okay, T.C. Boyle, thank you for indulging us here at Madcap. We really, we really appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation. Okay, you're quite welcome. All Things Animate, Beating in Unison, An Evening with T.C. Boyle, moderated by Michelle Brathman, Friday, March 27th, 7 p.m. at the Lutheran Church of the Reformation, located across the street from the Folger Shakespeare Library, 212 East Capitol Street, Northeast Washington, D.C. For more information, visit penfaulkner.org. Special thanks to T.C. Boyle, the Penn Faulkner Foundation, Lily Meyer, and Ashley Garland. For all of us here at Madcap, I am the charming English friend you always wanted, and you really do, Andy Duke. What do you think? I think it sound, sounded really good. You yeah. liked it? Yeah, I liked it cool. a lot. Cool, I liked it too. I liked it a lot. Madcap is produced by Daniel Bloom, David Ross, Afim Shapiro, and Juice Nadeke. Snadiki moves up in the world. Our intern is Christy Newen, madcapdc.org, on Facebook and Twitter at madcapdc. Mm-hmm.